everybody, and welcome to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games. That's it. That's certainly it. In this episode, we're going to be talking about two board games. My name's Quentin Smith, and I am joined by Tom Brewster. Uh, Tom, how many board games are we... To- you d- careful. Oh, careful, Tom. Steady now. Careful. Oh dear. How many board games are we talking about? Today? Two board games! That's right. And how many of them do we like? T- t- two? Two. Yeah, oh, two. Yeah, I like both of these. I like both of these. They're both good. However... We have to get serious for a second, Tom, because oh, yeah? this is this is going to be a difficult episode. It was a difficult day yesterday because these two games have two of the most boring themes. <laughs> There's no getting around this. Like, back to back, both games that we had a blast playing that I own and, and I'm going to keep in my collection. And both games with themes that, if you were to say, like, Quinn's, these themes are bad, I'd be like, yeah. You would agree. Yeah, they're not I would agree. great. I think one of them at least has a theme. The other one's theme is so nebulous that you could barely even call it a theme. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, the best thing we can say about these themes is neither of them are problematic, although one of them is nearly problematic. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, like, tepid, you know, preamble, let's go. First on our tricky theme podcast is Imperial Steam. This is a game where you'll spend upwards of two hours managing a failing train company. Uh, This (laughs) is brought to us by Alexander Humer and Capstone Games. And it's a hard one to explain, right? Because I'm not going to get bogged down in the details because it's quite a complicated game. Uh, There is loads of stuff going on here. So I think instead we'll do a sort of guided tour of the fun systems and the weird stuff. Uh, But first... Let me just say what it is like broadly. It's a train game. But well, oh, you know what? Even saying it's a train <laughs> game is bad because train games and economic games that feature trains are like two separate things in board games, aren't they? So yeah, it's a game with trains. But the core of it is a worker placement thing where you put your can little... We, can, ha- I just, can, I, can I also just get you to where it's set? Oh. Because I, th- that, this is the most magical part. Oh yeah, no, it is. It is. This is the only like uh, lick of theme that you get uh, in the entirety of this game. Uh, it's in industrial age Austria between the years of 1839 and 1857. Love it. There's yeah. an aqueduct you can build. Uh, uh, the Semmering token. That, there we go. Yeah, you can build the Semmering. And what does that do? You've got an aqueduct. Right. Now that now all the theme in the game has been described, please <laughs> uh, uh, take it away. So the core of this is kind of a worker placement thing where you put action hands down on worker placement spaces to take the actions. Those could be things like building track. They could be hiring workers to build that track. They could be staffing those workers in little factories to produce the goods you need to build the track. Or they could be building train stations, or you could be securing the goods you need in the first place to start that whole cycle. There's also this extra little stack of actions that are kind of related to influence, this nebulous metric that determines what towns you can hire workers from and your turn order. And there's also another kind of sub-mechanic of shares. Not like in other sort of train games where you can buy shares in other people's company. This just represents the investors that you have and are annoying. You can up your share price and you can sell your shares to investors for liquid cash that you can then reinvest into your railway. But every investor that you sell to for those immediate cash bonuses will shave a cool 10% off of your score at the end of the game. And I did this action in the very first round of the game. And I think that was kind of a bad move, but it did set the tone for how constricted everything gets really, really quickly. Um, In fact, like there's a sharpness to this game, right? Where when we played our game, we actually 
I don't know if I should say this, Quinns, because it might be a little embarrassing, but we reset our game because of a... <laughs> oh, it, it, oh, oh, right. Oh, we're not going to talk about the two games of this that I've won. We're going to talk about the <laughs> one opening I did that was so bad that we, we looked at it together as, a two, as two players and were like, yeah, let's just reset the game because there's no <laughs> way was, I can win. It was Scorched Earth. Basically, like, I sort of priced Quinns out of getting his initial workers on the very first turn. So it had this very hostile game state on turn one. And you were very rightly like... This is going to be a miserable couple of hours if this is going to continue as uh, as as this has been set out. Um, I guess that's leading into the fact that right, like nothing is simple in this game. Uh, yes. You can build like one or two uh, railway tracks at a time, but to do that, you need a set of the game's three resources, which you can only get one at a time unless you pre-order <laughs> the goods to arrive next turn. I've been thinking about this because. The way you've described it, even though you're you're doing an admirable job, like it's very difficult to make Imperial Steam sound anything other than generic because for a start, it's called Imperial Steam. <laughs> it's about like building train tracks. But I did feel this game was pretty refreshing and really pretty cool with a board that's like quite arresting because you've got all these mountains and rivers on it and um, all these like weird mm. spaghetti things that you lay trail on. The way I would describe it though is that when you say there's a sharpness to it, like it's the di the difference between Imperial Steam and other Euro games is like the difference between a regular Mario Kart track and Rainbow Road or something. <laughs> like Imperial Steam is the Rainbow Road, and it's not just that there are hard edges to this track. It's that like you can just go sailing off it at any yes. point, and it, that lends lends this real tension and like dread to Imperial Steam. I think the most accurate thing you said was saying it's not just a game where you run a train company; you run a failing train company <laughs> because the resources you got in this game, which are like so money. There's workers, there's influence, which determines where you can hire from. There's like trains, there's resources, there's actions, and probably one or two other things I'm forgetting. But all of those things, it's like, if you have enough of them, you will spend it and very quickly run out. It's a game of not having enough of anything at any point. And, and like, I, I don't know, I don't want to say the word dread again, but, <laughs> but it's a train <laughs> game powered by dread. It That's kind of... Yeah. It does feel like you are actually, like, this is my thing that I really like about this game is it does feel like, you know, I joke that it feels like you're running a failing train company, but I think <laughs> running a train company is actually what this game really does kind of feel like. It's not a game where, like, the numbers are just linearly going to go up throughout the game or exponentially go up. It's going to be a game of, like, weird peaks and valleys where you have to, like, problem solve and liquidate parts of your company to get an injection of cash to then build the tiny bit of track you need to make a connection. Uh, it's I think savage. you're onto something there. Problem solving is, yeah, that's it. That's the difference between this and, like, you know, you can play 18xx games and they're about, you know, how much money can you make? Um, mm. Or, you know, you can play Ticket to Ride and it's how efficiently can you play... Um, Imperial Steam is really problem solving. It's you will not have enough slots in your train. You will not have enough iron. You will not have enough coal. You will not have enough money. And then it's about looking at the game and all these different actions you can take to think, okay, what is my way around this? Because the central hook, and actually maybe the most interesting thing about Imperial Steam is that, <laughs> now I'm going to ask our readers to think back to their knowledge of Austrian geography and specifically how that relates to the industrial age. <laughs> so these train companies are trying to get to what I think is the ocean, but it's the city of Trieste, basically. So you start in the northeast of the board, and as you're building these train tracks, somebody, ideally, has to make a train network that runs down to Trieste. 
um, which is like an exhausting prospect. <laughs> and like in, in every game of this we've played, only one player has done that because when they're doing it, the other players are like, okay, th- someone's doing that. I can just not think about that task at all. <laughs> yeah. um, because if you make it to Trieste, then the game scores as normal. But if you don't make it to Trieste, then all of these contracts that you're taking on, which is like essentially a way of getting a, lot of, a, a huge amount of cash by saying you're going to apply these factories to fulfilling like deliveries of coal or steel or whatever. Um, those contracts can only be fulfilled if there is a train track that runs to the ocean. So mechanically, if no one completes that track in the rounds the game lasts, if no one makes it down to Trieste, all of those contracts are negative points. They are impossible to fulfill. Mm. Um, so I think that, and that to me really does power the game because initially there's this moment of the players looking at each other thinking like, well, who's going to take a contract? Because that is a way to get investors, which is a way to get money. But the player who takes the contract is basically saying, I am now the one who will drag us all to Trieste because I'm the one with the most to lose if we fail to do so. And then the other players then sort of feel it's safe to then get into contracts. But then you could end up with this weird game state where right at the end, someone's close to connecting to Trieste, but it's like, how much will I really lose if I don't do this connection on the final Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also like a weird little extra mechanic where if you did... If someone did make it all the way to Trieste and the other players have got contracts but didn't make it to Trieste, they have to lease the railway for the last leg of the journey from the other player, which is nice. It means you want to make it some way to Trieste, but not maybe all the way because you could still pay them a little bit of money, but how much are you willing to give up? It's really quite juicy. And this is how uh, it gets really interesting how the board is designed and there is a random setup that I would be genuinely intimidated to play with because I do think it would turn the game on its head. Um, But in the beginner setup that we used, like that building your train journey to Trieste, there are all of these like juicy little stopovers or like ways. Basically every different city tile on the board that you can connect to offers a different bonus. And surprise, surprise, going straight to Trieste means ignoring a lot of these bonuses, (laughs) which in a game as punishing as Imperial Steam is like just like already you're not going to have enough of anything. If you also turn your nose up at like the few spaces along the way that are like pit stops and like rewards, you're just going to be bankrupt. You're going to have to take so much investment that you'll have to halve your final score and you'll definitely lose. So it's a game of like constantly, I don't know, like chasing rewards to make your life a bit easier, but then that just makes Trieste further away. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing about this game is generous, is it? I don't know. There's this really weird like core to it where when I feel like I was going to explain this game, I think I was going to talk about all the different systems. Like when you hire workers, they get more expensive. You have to have influence over the town. You can hire engineers. You can build bridges and tunnels for cash. There's keys to the city. There's the Semmering token. There's contracts. There's segmented, upgradable trains that are only available on historically accurate rounds. <laughs> like, yeah. it's easy to talk about this game in this, like, language of, of abundance, right? Like, but <laughs> it's not. Playing it is so constricted. It oh, burns God, your brain. Yeah. Like, I was never sitting pretty on a round. Like, maybe the first couple turns, I was like, I've got a plan, I know what I'm doing. And then you run into wall after wall straight away. Like, there was a turn where I had, like, a perfect plan. I I thought I had a perfect plan. And then I realized that I could only requisition a certain number of goods in any given round based on this little number tracker at the top. And then, like, I thought, oh, well, I'll just buy a little bit of it. But then before I could do that, Quinn's managed to buy all of the stone in the game. There's something so (laughs) funny about the fact that in a two-player game you have resources entering so in a in a regular game you have resources entering the market each round in a four-player game you might have up to three whole cubes entering the market 
Holy heck. But in a two-player game, one cube enters the market on like four of the eight rounds in the game. A single sliver of wood <laughs> enters the market, driving the price from like the cost of a train to like the cost of a smaller train for this one <laughs> sodding cube of wood. Yeah, like just... I don't know. I think about um, the passenger train mechanics. So you've got these like little oh, uh, so cardboard good. tokens that represent trains in front of you, right? And um, each of these little train carriages has a has a, a outline of a cube to demonstrate that each carriage on a train can carry a cube, a, a resource, basically. And you can flip these tokens, and then they depict little passenger cars. And you can put passengers on your train, and this gives you a drip of income every round. You flip three uh, carriages over into three little passenger tokens. That means you're getting 30... What's the currency in this game, Tom? Golden. You're getting 30 guldens around. That's a fantastic drip of money. Considering like it's an eight round game and our final and Tom's final score was like 500 guldens. Um, <laughs> that sounds great. How much did Tom and I interact with this mechanic? Hardly at all. Because like, <laughs> like in, in any other Euro game, getting to have passengers or like, the, I don't know, the mechanic of workers getting better is really cool. If you don't use a worker on a given round, you slide them to the right because basically rather than building train tracks, they were at school and then they become <laughs> a better worker. And all of these mechanics imply that you'd be able to get a little economy going, you get more workers, you get more schooled workers, you get more drip income. No. Like, the game is so tight that your workers will never have time to go to school. You will never have time to build passenger trains. And yet, it's not a cruel game. The puzzle what is What are you talking about? It is so cruel. <laughs> well, but like, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not mean. Like, Food Chain Magnate is mean. This game is just difficult. I don't know. I mean, what I'm interested about here is that you and I both, like when we play this game, we have a lot of like, like we put off playing it again for a really long time. And I'm kind of surprised that now I've gone to record a podcast. You and I are both just getting quite excited about it. I, I really want to play it again. <laughs> Do you? Okay, interesting. Because after the first time we played it, we didn't play it again for a long time. And this is the big problem with Imperial Steam. Uh, and again, the thing that distinguishes it, I think, from other train games is setting this game up and teaching it are the reasons that it was so long between our first and second mm -hmm. game. Although it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And I think that's because both of us had a rough idea of what it was like when we played it. We played it at PAX quite a while ago. And so we had a rough memory of, of what this game sort of felt like. And then reading the rules, it kind of came back quite quick. And there were some teething problems and some bumpy bits and some parts where I wasn't quite sure how a rule worked and we had to check it and that sort of thing. But really, it's not the most complex game in terms of rules like density if there's just sort of a br actually maybe it is it's quite rules dense but not rules wide if that makes sense it's yeah like each like explaining the how do you build track action was like 50 percent of the teach because it just spider webs into so many other systems um, oh yeah you need resources where do you get resources and you need workers where do you get workers? yeah the workers need to be of this level how does that work and it's yeah. like oh and then also making a delivery is a free action is that simple no let's talk about that and go down another little rabbit hole like there's loads of different little things you like warrens you can get yourself lost in when trying to teach this game which makes it really daunting to put in front of like i wouldn't want to play this with myself you and one new player because it would be like a very different experience to just me and you going head to head again in the game. Now we've sort of pushed against the boundaries of the puzzle the first time. Yeah, quite old school in that respect. I don't know why, but um, there's something about it that reminds me of, oh, I don't know, maybe not Pipeline, but something like Agricola, where mm. like it is a Euro game that is, you know, yes, it's a game, but just like trying to do a, like a competent job in it is 
uh, 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 is is a challenge. It is challenging. I think it really distinguishes itself from the current like tide of Eurogame designs, which are meant to be rewarding and you know number go up and you can look down at the end and think, what have I built? Mm. Whereas you know, like you finish a game of Imperial Steam and you look down and you can say, I didn't do this well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. I think that's what's pushing me into wanting to play it again was that there's definitely a scope for mastery in that box, right? Like there's so mm. many systems where you could optimize and you could sort of monkey bar between these little parts of the game and plan your route out beforehand and be able to kind of hold this puzzle in your head. But when we were playing it, it felt very much like, you know, we were just sort of playing in the sand pit and trying to build some trains that weren't a nightmare. And mine were a nightmare <laughs> for about a third of the game. I was stuck in this horrible mire where I couldn't get anything delivered to anywhere. But I'm also thinking, like, yeah, I tried playing in the sandpit in our second game, and that was the one where we had to reset after 10 minutes because I'd basically <laughs> taken a dump in the sandpit, and the sandpit had to be closed. That's exactly <laughs> the problem of, like, showing it to a, to a new player would be that they'd, they'd see the stink in the sandpit straight away. They'd be like, oh, well, I'm playing it with two people who have played this before and therefore know that bidding 50 on turn one is just a heinous <laughs> mistake. It's not, uh, but, like, it's... I don't want it to sound like it's super, super, super obtuse because the reason that we had to reset that second game is because it was my fault. Mm. I didn't think the consequences of my actions through. It's not like I I couldn't have seen it coming, <laughs> but guess what? If I only had access to buying people from one city, your first turn would be buying people in that city and then I would be <laughs> just completely screwed. Um, it's good. I also, as long as we're saying nice things about it, I think it would it would feel and kind of does feel pleasantly different at different player counts because mm. at two player the head to head nature of it means that every dollar if you can deny a dollar to your opponent or Goulden sorry um, then uh, <laughs> you know that's as good as you yourself making a Goulden and I think in a three player game it's a little more broad but in a four player game you know because it's not like the board gets any bigger there would be a lot more of a race to get your tracks down before other people because if other mm. people build their tracks parallel to you um, it, they have to give you money yeah um, so I, and with money being so tight in this game, I think you could, you know, you wouldn't have to necessarily have investments as long as you're constantly getting, you're building tracks just before your friends do. And so they have to, um, you know, give you money to lease your rail. Yeah. You're right that mo good. Like, money feeling tight is like definitely the sort of like the main takeaway from this game would be like, you'd start your turn, you'd do like one thing and then be like, I'm out of cash again. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. how long is it till I get cash? Oh, it's like four actions. I've got to do something between then. Now I get cash. How much do I get? 10 bucks. Like it's so <laughs> savage. Um, uh, but, but really quite really delightful. Good. Really quite delightful. Yeah. Who do we think this game is for then? Because I think, you know, you, I think this is another really good release from Capstone. I don't know if it's getting a video review because... Well, why, why wouldn't we give this a video review? Because I think you and I are agreed on it. It's, it's, I think first and foremost, it's not for everyone. It's so dull thematically and so, such a complicated teach yes. and so challenging that I think really it is a board gamer's board game. Yeah. But I not a train gamer's board game. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> well, it's, not, uh, it's not in the genre of train games. It's a Euro game that uses trains. Yes. I think. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, I think that it's what, who it's for is maybe like a group of like relatively heavy gamers who want to like drill down into one game over multiple sessions and aren't worried about you know, a game night that could sprawl for like three and a half hours for just one game of this. Because I think your first game of this at four players could take forever. 
Yeah, with, especially with the teach, you're looking at like four mm-hmm. or five hours, maybe. Yeah. Um, I also, but I also do think there's real depth in this box. I think mastery, you're onto something, and I think the randomized setup is huge. Yeah. Um, being able to like you know in, in certain rounds, this is such a dull thing to get excited about, but in certain rounds, you can order goods that you buy to arrive via canal, and on some rounds, <laughs> and this is randomized, that canal is more or less generous. So maybe on round two of the game, you can order, whew, you can order a whopping four cubes and they'll arrive next turn. That could define your entire strategy. Yeah. The random placement of the cities, I think, would definitely define the direction that you're choosing to build and the speed in which you're choosing to build. Yeah. So yeah, real real richness in this box. But my goodness, what were they thinking setting it in Austria? Like, <laughs> I uh, think it, it lends itself a certain, like, I don't know. It, it the fact A that dry it, charm, yeah. Yes, it does have a dry charm. And, and there's something like, you know, we often will talk about games that have no theme as kind of accidentally being the funniest. And there's definitely a, you know, something about this game being so unbelievably dry and harsh that when you are failing, you can't help but really kind of laugh at it. Um, yeah, the fact that you might not have the Gouldens to acquire the Semmering Aqueduct and that could shit can your entire game <laughs> is like, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, I also, I, I just found it very funny when um, when I was like, have my head in my hands because I didn't have a wood and like couldn't figure out a way out. And then I just enjoyed that then the next round you would have a horrible time. It feels like <laughs> quite rhythmic in the way that different players around the board are having a horrible time at different times, which I, I really, really enjoy. Yeah, you, you've got to allow in your like, you know, large play session of this game, you've got to allow at least 20 minutes for despair. Um, <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, Tom, Tom isn't joking when he says that. <laughs> like there were points in our game where I, I had to, I apolog- we both apologized to each other respectively because I was just like, I can't, I yeah. can't, I can't see a way out of this solution. <laughs> but then you, but then this is the difference between Imperial Steam and other difficult games. We would ultimately find a solution and then the, the company would start flowing again. So yeah. Yeah. When you it's find really that flow, it's really nice. It's, it's such a, you know, like it's... <laughs> There's a real, is it pathos is the right word? There's a real feeling of like, you you get yourself going, you get yourself up the ground, you're doing great, you're having a good time. And then like four rounds later, yeah, you're just, you're like, what, how do I get into this situation? You let, you, you sort of get over, over excited, over eager. You're like, I'm the king of the world. And then two turns later, you are literally weeping. Yeah. Wow. So that's, uh, that's Imperial Steam published by Capstone Games. Yeah. Solid, solid trains. Talking about Steam, that was a lot of hot air from me and Tom. Coming up next, we have a game that is... Wow. Uh, was that a seg? I don't know. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the Guild of Merchant Explorers. This is uh, published by AEG and designed by Matthew Dunstan and Brett J. Gilbert, with art by Gerald Landman. And, right, first off, the Guild of Merchant Explorers is really good. There was a brief quite tense discussion with me and Tom where we discussed which of us were going to keep it because Matt <laughs> wanted to play it. I wanted to keep it. Tom really liked it. So that was nerve wracking. Um, ultimately, <laughs> I lost that discussion and it's going to Matt. Um, however, while the Guild of Merchant Explorers is really good, it's also like a name and a theme that could have been generated by like, you know, like a random game naming table. This game could have been called, you know, like the Warriors of Medieval Villages or yep. the Dragons of you know, like fantasy. Tribes of new. Yeah. And if we now say the Guild of Merchant Explorers, that sounds like, you know, we've made it up. It's not. It's the actual name of the game. So the Guild of Merchant Explorers, I think, almost feels like a roll and write in its lightness and how it's played. But it's not. It's a board game that involves placing a lot of very fiddly little cubes on a lot of very small hexagons. 
Every player around the table has a map in front of them with a fantasy realm. Um, and in the middle of this map is your capital. And on each of the four rounds of this game, you are going to explore outwards, um, placing little cubes um, based on cards that come out the top of the deck. So, for example, maybe in round one, the first card that gets flipped off the top of the deck is um, a sand, like some sandy tiles. So everyone can place two explorer cubes on two sandy tiles connected to their capital. And so you're kind of spidering these cubes out. You're spreading them based on what cards come out. Maybe it says, oh, you can cross water now in a straight line. So you dash across the water to another continent. And then it says, oh, you can go through mountains. And so all players are deciding how and where to explore based on these cubes. And you get a lot of variation quite quickly because, and this is a really cool mechanic, um, in each round, in each of the first three rounds, one, two, and three, cards are put into the deck that, with a Roman numeral one, two, or three. And when these come out, players draw different explorer actions from a deck, um, and each player draws two of them and chooses one. And then for the rest of the game, every time that number one Roman numeral comes up, all the players will do whatever card they chose in that first round. Mm. So, for example, Tom, you might have a, like, ooh, I can't actually, I don't know what you had. I had a... Um, you can explore a mountain and then explore, like, and go splashing into water kind of off the mountain. I had a, was, uh, you could explore useful. a mixture of four oceans and mountains as long as they were all connected. We're making this sound really boring because we said something really similar. Yeah, that's <laughs> true, are, we did. There, there is variation. Uh, you can just you can just shoot off in a straight line as long as you don't cross water. There's like weird zigzags. There's a big deck of different things. Um, I'm sort of keenly aware that none of what I'm describing sounds particularly exciting. Um, <laughs> what you are doing as you are exploring is, um, is triggering all of these little um, scoring conditions. So you are trying to fill up contiguous hexes of the same type. So maybe it's like four grassland in a kind of um, wiggly shape. If you manage to get an explorer cube in every one of those grassland tiles, bam, you just made some coins by founding a village. You swap one of those cubes out for a little cute little village token. And here's the cool part. At the end of each round, you're going to sweep all of the exploration cubes you've got. So you have to start from the beginning again. But you can place cubes can, uh, adjacent to the uh, capital in the center of your board or any villages you have founded. So as you're trying to reach out to bigger rewards, such as the towers in the corner of the map or explore ruins that give you little treasure cards or, um, or trying to connect up trading posts so that they, they give you like these weird multiplicative scoring bonuses. Um, in each round, you're able to start from villages you've placed. So you're kind of like, I'm thinking of it like, you know how rock climbers will free climb up a wall, but then put... Uh, pitons into the wall, like hammer pitons into the wall so other climbers can go up more easily afterwards. That's mm. kind of like what you're doing with these villages. As you're exploring the map, you're trying to found villages, which while they don't score a great deal, will let you start your exploration from there later. Um, the final thing I'll say about Guild of Merchant Explorers is that they have done a kind of noble, kind of half-assed job of decolonializing this game. So um, the board game industry has had this reckoning recently about how so many board games um, have themes of colonialism. So many board games have themes where, oh, you all play explorers who go off and land in this like virgin territory and you're going to found, you know, sugar plantations or whatever. Yep. Basically stuff that it completely ignores the agency and rights and crimes that were committed against the indigenous peoples of these places, um, like erasing them from history and sometimes glossing over things like slavery. Um, and like, basically, we call it colonialism. I think the people who we colonize refer to it as uh, economic or literal military invasion. Mm. Um, so the board game industry is trying to like, uh, reckon with these themes and replace them with better themes. Guild of Merchant Explorers is 100% a game of sending ships out and founding towns in other territories. 
But it, it, this game could have been called the Guild of Merchant Colonizers, but they've called it the Guild of Merchant Explorers. And rather than like founding or conquering villages, you are discovering them. Mm. Um, so that's fine, I guess. It's kind of <laughs> cool that AEG is not doing something that's like, you know, actively horrible from a political standpoint. Um, <laughs> but it, they don't they don't get huge marks for it because yeah, I think you could control F replace. The words, you know, like uh, found with like, you know, settle and then it becomes a colonial scale. Anyway. That's the thing is, I think that we actually sort of defaulted to saying like, because the action is discover a village, but we were saying like establish a village or like, you know, yeah. create a, a town or something like that. Because that's like, I guess that's because we're so used to that being the verb, like the verbiage of, of board games um, that it's yeah. quite hard to shake that from this as well. Yeah, it's very much still just launching expeditions from a central city and then becoming very wealthy based on, you know, like, based on the exploits of your, your quote-unquote explorers. Anyway, look, it's fine. It's it's not a, it's not a like, a horrible game. They've done their best with it. It's yeah, just quite yeah. funny how they've, like... It, it, it's, it's really just an interesting case study in how you can't just change words in order to depoliticize a game. You do mm. have to think about changing the mechanics as well. Yeah. Um, but all that aside, as a game of placing little wooden crubes on a board and getting points, it's breezy, it's fast. <laughs> and like you and I immediately, like for a game, we were joking because we played this after Imperial Steam and we were joking that it's like, oh, now Quinn's is going to teach a game that's like just as complicated as Imperial Steam when actually it's like a 10 page manual in a tiny box. Um, I think it was like our second action of the game. You and I both got AP. Like, <laughs> yes. we, both, we both got analysis paralysis because we were like, hang on. And we realized just how much there is to consider in this little rule set. I think it's lovely because you can just go in like any direction from the start. And that created so much like, oh, but because you have these objectives that come out as well that you kind of want to fulfill. And we had, it's kind of strange to see that both of us went for roughly the same strategy in this game. Um, like we sort of had the same ideas about where to go. I think we both sort of swung it west and then sort of like dabbled going the other way for a little bit, trying to hoover up some endgame points. I think you were just but the, marginally but more successful than me at doing right. that. You, you compare, you're saying our strategies are similar. I mean, I won and you didn't, so you've got to wonder <laughs> exactly how similar those strategies uh, were, but you can go on. Yeah, there is there is this feeling of like real, like, you know, you can go kind of anywhere in the map and you can kind of carve out your own strategy, which I think is really conducive to like wanting to immediately play this again well like, i i finished that game and was like oh i really enjoyed that i'd play it again it's nice um, i would definitely have played it again i know and there's also like different maps as well that come in the box as well which all have their own sort of like unique little kind of scoring criteria um mm -hmm. and there's lots of there's you know there's lots of variability in that treasure deck and in the explore action decks you'd be playing a very different game every time even though ultimately you're just dumping loads of cubes onto a board but it just feels like it's so there's this weird thing where like all the actions, the basic actions you can take, the vanilla actions are quite tepid. You know, they're explore one space, maybe two, and the ocean one lets you do three. You're not putting yeah. that many cubes onto the board at one time. But those special actions that you pull, those exciting ones become so like important to your strategy and how you approach the puzzle because they're so much bigger. Like my one letting me explore like, you know, four spaces. That one that you pulled that let you go in like a straight line for basically unlimited spaces could do like- Until you ran into water, yeah. Yeah, that could do huge things for like how you would approach this game. I think that's really exciting. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that in there. There's a lot of that kind of stuff where you pull a card and you go, Ooh, how could I <laughs> leverage this? And it's it's also like, I think that's the other thing is that pulling those 
you know, cards from the deck at random means that you always have to leverage an opportunity when it arises and you have to sort of, you're somewhat controlled by that deck, but you can, you know, you can sort of pitch your strategy one way or another by making sure you have access to all the different kinds of land because exploring something is better than exploring nothing. Um, my question though, right, with this game, and you allude to it right at the start, is why is this game not a roll and write? <laughs> Uh, well, okay, I was thinking about this too. So it, the thing it has in common with Random Rights is that, um, you know, everyone, all the turns are simultaneous and there's this constant flow of flipping a card off a deck and everyone going, hmm, as they like, and every card is like a good thing, right? There's yes. no trap cards. It's like every round of the game is, you get a card and you get to explore a little bit more. And a bad turn is like, I explored something and didn't get rewarded. But, you know, like you can build off that later. And a good turn is like, oh my God, I just filled in these hexes, which means I found a div- Oh, sorry, I just did it. I just did it. I found a village. I didn't found a village. I explored a village. I mean, <laughs> like, let's be real. What happens is that when you fill an area, you decide where the village goes. That's not finding a village. That's deciding exactly where to build one. Anyway, so yeah, but in, on a good turn, you'll you know get a village and you'll you know also explore a tower and you'll also connect two cities that are trading posts. It's all great. You'll get like tons of coins. Um, why is it not a roll and write though? So like. The thing is, if this was a roll and write, you would have to erase a lot, right? You would have to yeah, because the, you, because the, the fact that you pick up all the cubes again, um, you would have to like erase all, like some but not all of your pencil drawings. And I, yeah, oh, but you could you could actually do that quite easily with a dry with erase. With dry erase, yeah, 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 yeah. I think the reason it's not a roll and write is that if it was a roll and write, they wouldn't be able to charge an MSRP of $50 for it. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> How my awfully I mean, cynical of you. Well, I mean, look, tough times publishers all around. This is a good design. And AEG decided they were going to print it with real boards and lots of pieces of wood. There were little wooden towers, little wooden cubes and little wooden villages. And two points here. First off, to me, placing those little wooden pieces on my board and then picking them back up every round feels great. I'll also flag here that if you're someone who struggles with manual dexterity or, you know, maybe someone who, for whatever number of reasons, maybe your hands shake a little bit, oh my goodness, this isn't the game for you. It's like genuinely quite demanding to place, to, you know, pick up a cube in a, in a in a field of cubes and replace it with a tiny town. Yeah. That's not, it's not super easy. And I, I also think, like, I think you found that fiddliness kind of, like, pleasing in a way. You kind of liked did the you fact not? that... I don't think I did, and I was terrified the entire time that one nudge of that board would just spell complete disaster for the game. Not just for yeah. me, but for, like, you you know, you as well, because there's no way that I'd be able to reset them exactly where they were <laughs> first time yes. around. <laughs> yeah, if you nudged your player board, we would all lose. Or, you know. <laughs> exactly. And I yeah. think that that... That stuff I found a little bit frustrating. Um, like, I don't think... I think it's pleasing. It's like uh, sowing and reaping. You know, you place those cubes and, oh, it feels good to place a cube. And then, oh, it's time to take them all off your board again. Oh, boy, I've got to avoid the villages and play a little yeah. mini game of trying to scoop these cubes without scooping any villages. Um, uh, you know, I, I I think I can... So I have answered your question of why is this not a roll and write? And I think it's AG felt that in the market, they would do better with a bigger box with wooden components. Yes. Uh, or maybe they just never considered I, uh, There's it definitely also like a fatigue about roll and writes at the moment, I think, where like, it's like, oh, another roll and write. Like, I think some people yeah. are finding frustration there, um, which yeah. I can see. And like, and they like, ugh, I don't know about the price, but they've certainly justified like, you know, the box size, the, the, the mats that you have in front of you that show different maps are mm. cool. The cards are nice. It's a nice production. I think the more difficult question for me that I, I would struggle to answer, but maybe you can, is why would you buy this when for the price you could buy two equally 
I don't know about equally good, but you could buy two very good Roland rights. That's true. I, I, I guess, I, I mean, honestly, that's very hard to answer. I mean, there are some I places- I know, right? <laughs> there's even, I'm really keen, and this is like a completely non-backed um, opinion, but I've had my eye on a game called Voyages, I think it's called, which is a, a print and play Roland right, which has sort of pushed this thing of like, oh yeah, Roland rights, like you can just print them out rather than have them as like box games yeah, as well. In in my um uh print and play series that I did at the very start of the pandemic, I looked at a lovely game called Bargain Basement Bathosphere. But um w- what that does is if it uses the print and play uh format to let you like when you as you're printing off your um roll and write sheets, it can it turns out you can very easily do a campaign if you're using a print and play format because every sheet can be a little bit different mm. and every sheet can be a little bit more complicated and we saw that um used in the uh full price boxed game um Welcome to the Moon. Yes, that's true. Um but Bargain Basement Bathosphere is like we don't need 10 sheets we can do like 50 sheets. It's great. Yeah. 50 different sheets. There's also to be fair, you could if you bought this game, you could then make it into a roll and write if you had the oh, craft ooh. skills. <laughs> By laminating the player sheets. You could photocopy them, then laminate them, then get... Is that illegal? But but hang on, if you're buying it, like, first off, I think if you're releasing it publicly, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) maybe that's bad. But but also, why would you buy the more expensive version? This one is essentially a deluxe roll and write and use craft skills to make it into a worse game. The first thing that then Uh, jumped into my head was, so you can then distribute it to your friends. And I went, no, that's definitely bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I will I will say, you know, like that question I asked of like, why would you buy this instead of two Roland rights? It's like, I struggle to think of, I don't know, like obviously Welcome to the Moon and Railroad Inc. are both amazing games. You know, we can agree to disagree on the exact qualities of Fleet the Dice game and Three Sisters, which I think you <laughs> like more than I do. Um, I But uh, I don't know if there's a Roland right game I can point to that says, oh yeah, the Guild of Merchant Explorers is exactly as good as that game. I think the Guild of Merchant Explorers is its own thing and a and not necessarily better, but you've got a different enough game in this that I I do think it can stand alone in the market. I would encourage people to to try it certainly and buy it maybe if they like the look of it. I think it's really good. I just think it is a bit expensive. It's a bit expensive. I think there's always this thing where like you want for a certain price point, you want a game that's like a certain level of meaty and that you like, you know, you want to spend a certain number of hours playing it or something. And I think that the, the fact that the Guild of Merchant Explorers is quite quick, like, and 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 breezy. It is 40, it is 45 minutes. Yeah. Right? It's not it's not Hadrian's Wall, but it's not Railroad Inc either. That's fair. But I, I think that it's also like, I think that's what I was going to say, right? Is that there's like a little bit of like, there's always a little bit of this feeling that you like want your money's worth out of a game at this kind of price point. But really, I think the idea with Guild of Merchant Explorers is you'll replay it sufficiently, like you'll you'll replay it enough times to justify its price point because it's so quick, if that makes sense. Like yeah, yeah. it's so pacey, it could just be a fixture of like, oh, do you want a quick game Merchant Explorers? And it fills that niche rather than something that's like <laughs> a big when chunky you, thing. When you just said that, I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I play the Guild of Merchant Explorers right now. Like after work today, it well, I mean actually I'm busy today, but if you want to meet up tomorrow in a pub and play the Guild of Merchant Explorers, I'm down. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. If you enjoyed it, you can leave a comment on the Shut Up and Sit Down website about how much you enjoyed it. And the only comment I will accept is full caps love the podcast, keep it up, and then three exclamation points. No Whenever more, we do no this, I, do, I don't like it because 
then I forget that we've said it. And then I go to check the comments on the podcast and all the comments are like the same thing. And it's like usually a short thing that we've encouraged people to say, but I've forgotten that we've asked them to do that. So I'm like, why is everyone being weird? <laughs> what are all these bots on the website? Yeah, I gotta ban all of them. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't ban all of them or any of them. Um, but yeah, I do forget that we ask people to, to say this. We ask people to to leave a like, a like, comment and a subscribe down below. Um, That's Now you're just trying to make me feel like I'm getting dementia. That you don't like or subscribe to a podcast. Actually, you do subscribe to a podcast. You do. And I guess you do like it. What's real? I don't know. See you next week. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Uh...